Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. I realized in reading that passage, uh, you kind of just want to, as you know, followers of Jesus, jump straight ahead to the resurrection. And I think that was actually why it was a little bit difficult for me to like prep this sermon all this week. Uh, it's very difficult just to like actually grasp the gravity of the cross and what it means. Um, so think about this for a moment. Uh, it's difficult to really like understand suffering that's far off from you. Right, so like this coronavirus is happening all around the world, and you know, I guess it's happening in Denver now too, and it just seems so like distant. I can't really like every time I hear a story, I just think to myself, "Whoa, it's that bad now!" Right, like uh, they're canceling music festivals, people are stranded on cruise boats. Like there's one sitting in the San Francisco Harbor right now of you know hundreds of people that are too scared to even like go out of their own staterooms for fear of catching this before they even get allowed back into the country. They're going to uh, have to like go through these tests to make sure that they themselves are not infected, even just because two other people on their boat were infected. Actually, oddly enough, two people were on the boat before they got on there that were infected, that then infected two more people uh, that were on the boat. It's just spreading like mad, and people are actually dying from this. And still, I'm sitting there, you know, I was reading all of this uh, stupid daylight savings time. I'm reading this in the complete and total darkness this morning, which I'm more mad at than coronavirus, which shows my own selfishness and lack of perspective. And I'm sitting there and I'm reading like the Weather Channel and it writes this little, you know, app about, or this little like, you know, article about the coronavirus. And it is just insanely difficult to grasp, right? Like the suffering of people that are happening on the news report doesn't really like translate to us like think about the difference in like the sorrow and suffering and pain that you feel when one person gets reported that they have died on the news versus when a hundred people get reported or a thousand people get reported like you can kind of sit back you know in your chair and think to yourself like wow like uh that was a lot of people or that must have been some crazy suffering or wow that must in fact be difficult but it's still just impossible to wrap your mind around it it's exactly the way that we approach this story today Uh, odds are, no matter your background, you've probably heard at least bits and pieces of this story before. You've heard the way in which Jesus died on the cross and that it was a particularly gruesome death. But it's difficult to really, like, wrap your mind around just how terrible and awful that it was. Let's just take a second. I'm just going to run through uh, some of the elements of this story. He had to carry the crossbeam himself. Now, remember, uh, this is also after Pilate tried to, you know, do a little sneaky sneak thing where he's like, well, what if I beat up Jesus really bad and then show him to the Jews? And they're like, look at this bloody and bruised guy with the crown of thorns. He's clearly, you know, been beaten within an inch of his life. So uh, after they see that, then they're going to let him go. But they decided not to. They decided to keep, keep punishing. So now he had to endure like lashes. He's got like open wounds on his back. Like I tripped when I was running the other day and got a scab on my knee and I've been complaining about it for a week and a half. Jesus is like carrying a like, you know, rough hewn. They didn't even have sawmills back then. He's carrying a rough hewn log on his back while he has open sores from being whipped on his back. And he's carrying this thing, uh, it was sort of like a, a sort of uh, dark kind of parade. This whole thing was a lot of fanfare to make sure that they were sort of uh, trying to deter crime. So they were trying to say, hey, you shouldn't do what this man has done. Look at the suffering that you'll uh, endure. Interestingly enough, this was also considered a cursed way to die. 
Uh, and so actually you can see like in the Old Testament, it says that uh, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul quotes it again in Galatians 3.13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Then it's sort of like an extra dose of, of sort of irony. Pilate writes this sign, and the Jews are like, hey, you should take this sign down. Uh, we don't want to see that. The sign says that Jesus was king of the Jews, and they're like, whoa, 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 he's not my king. But there's sort of like a tongue-in-cheek kind of irony there. He writes it over the, over the cross, and he writes it in three different languages. Aramaic was written so that the Jews could understand it. Latin was so that the army could understand it. Greek was so that, the, uh, so that basically everyone else who was traveling through could actually be able to understand it. And he's showing them like, hey, uh, this is what happens when you try to be king. This is what happens when you stand up against Caesar. This is what happens when you stand up against Pilate. You get put up on a cross and we're putting this was the king of the Jews. Look at how he is dying right in front of you. And as he's standing there, and it's interesting, some details that John goes out of his way to show are actually prophetic tellings from uh, the Old Testament coming true right here in Jesus's life. They divide up his clothes. So uh, he had like this outer garment that was stitched of just one piece, which was kind of rare-ish back then. It was also something uh, priests were sort of known to have like one continuous uh, stitched piece. And so Jesus had this one piece and they decided not to cut it up and break it up into smaller pieces, but to give away as one. John presents this very uh, painful moment, this uh, very emotional moment where Jesus has to give away his own mother. And uh, we don't really know where Joseph was in any of these stories. It's kind of interesting that, you know, uh, he's part of the whole birth narrative and then kind of disappears. But Mary seems to be present following Jesus around, a part of like his little band of disciples and uh, intimately connected in with the life of Jesus. But still, Jesus would have been sort of her caretaker. He would have been the person that felt most responsible over her. She would have been uh, going a little bit older or getting a little bit older at this point. And he looks at uh, most likely John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He looks down at him while Jesus is like bleeding out. Also, uh, just a little quick note, on a cross, you don't die from bleeding out. You actually die from asphyxiation. Uh, It's difficult to like hold up your, or basically you have to hold up your body in order to be able to take in a breath. I'm not trying to just be unnecessarily gruesome, but I'm just trying to paint a picture of like uh, Jesus is hanging there, having to fight for every single breath, looks down at his own mother and has to sort of hand her away to one of his disciples saying, I can't take care of you anymore. Now... Uh, he looks at John, the disciple whom he loved, and he said, this is your mom now. Mom, this is your son. Then he was buried in a borrowed tomb by none of his disciples, ironically enough. Who knows where they were or whether they felt like they had the influence or power to be able to take him down, but he's buried by uh, Nicodemus and this guy named Joseph in a tomb that he didn't even own. You know, I think even more than just sort of like the heinousness of that, of, of, of just slowly dying out. And we don't even know, uh, since Jesus had the lashings, we don't know if he uh, was actually like dead because of the blood wounds or if he did uh, asphyxiate like most people t- typically would on the cross. It's actually why they would break the bones of the other prisoners in their legs so that they no longer had that ability to be able to push up, push themselves up to get a breath anymore. 
These are all sort of like the physical aspects of this entire thing. We don't even know like what was going on in Jesus's head. First Peter 2.24 says this. It says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. I have a lot of questions about that phrase, bore our sins in his body. Now, first off, it sounds like uh, some sort of like weird Bible speak for like a hangover, right? Where it's like your body knows your sins or whatever. Like uh, it feels like you're sort of like carrying sin and pain in your body. But I'm not 100% sure just like exactly what's going on there. You know, there's a lot of like worship songs and even like devotional materials uh, that sort of uh, would lead you to believe that Jesus is somehow witnessing or experiencing all the sins that he would have to be dying for in that moment. And you have to believe that at some level, if Jesus was simultaneously God and man, that he was somehow conscious of why he was hanging on that tree. And the simple answer for why he was hanging on that tree is the sins of you and I, the simple, stupid, sometimes heinously evil, sometimes uh, selfish and small things that we do wrong. And in fact, I think it's also, uh, I guess it changes the way in which I even look at my own sin and I process uh, what I do and the decisions that I make Because now it is no longer just something that is sinful, that is harmful, uh, both to me and to the people around me. It's not just something that's sinful because it's against God's blessed plan for the world. But now it is something, one more thing that Jesus had to die for. And that doesn't mean that, you know, it gets sort of like piled on. I don't know that his pain was like more amplified in that moment or anything like that. I have no idea what he was processing. But I do think that in that moment when I'm being selfish, when I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to uh, have this little sin or I'm just going to keep this little pet sin over to the side or I'm going to, you know, do this thing and try and not ask the question whether or not it's wrong or right. All of those things are just things more and more of the sins that he had to bear in his body. And somehow, he being fully God, and he being the only one who could actually take on all the sins of mankind, there is possibility in that moment that he was somehow experiencing all of these sins. That he felt the full weight of humanity's failure. Here's where I want to sort of like land with this all. I, I, I hope... I hope that in your mind right now, you've painted a picture that you're like, you're able to sort of place yourself there at the cross. You're able to sort of see the great suffering and pain and shame and uh, just the horrendousness of what that was in that very moment. Not too many years later in 1 Corinthians, Paul would write this. He would say, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I can't seem to shake this verse this week. I really just can't get it out of my head. It's been popping up. I I can't get rid of it. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
See, everything about our text this week points to uh, the fact that the cross was shameful, that it was painful. Uh, The world walked by and said, what a waste, what a sad use of life, Uh, what a, a terrible, awful human being that must be hanging up on that cross. Even John sort of goes out of his way to say, look at this beautiful, amazing person, the most perfect person I've ever known. Look at him dying and bleeding out there on the cross. An innocent person dying it does not sound like it's powerful. It does not sound like it is beautiful or amazing. And yet, a few years later, this is the exact way that Paul, a follower of this Jesus, would process this heinous event. He lets us know that in response to the cross, there's really only two sort of places where you can find yourself, only, only two ways that you can respond. One is recognizing the cross as folly and saying that that was silly, that was stupid, that was useless, that was pointless. There's no need for the cross. This is actually uh, becoming more uh, popular among American circles, I guess you could say. Uh, more and more people are starting to sort of think that it's okay to mock Christianity, uh, which is is, you know, representing this cultural shift that, you know, I don't necessarily like need to go into too much, but I do think it's interesting to note that even places like, you know, SNL or something like that, even just like 30, 40 years ago would not have felt nearly as comfortable as they do now mocking Christianity, openly joking about it as if Jesus is some sort of like magician or, you know, tying him to certain political figures or something like that. That is like the folly that the cross has become and is is becoming. It's becoming the butt of a joke. It's becoming something that is like, well, you know, some crazy non-scientific people believe that. Some people that are backwards, some people that are ignorant, some people that are intolerant and hateful, they believe that stupid thing that this person, a Jewish person dying 2,000 years ago on a cross actually means something to them. That's one way of looking at the cross. The other way is that it is the power of of God, that it is the salvation for followers of Jesus. Now you notice there, Paul doesn't give us an in-between. He doesn't say, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And there's some people who are kind of all right that also think the cross is kind of all right. And it is the power of God for those who are being saved. Now, there's no sort of like middle ground there. There's no sort of like, well, you know, it's kind of all right, but it's kind of not. No, Paul paints a picture of only two responses to the cross. Uh, I I once uh, took a counseling class in seminary, and uh, so, you know, come to me with your problems. I know everything. I took a class. And uh, I had this uh, South African professor, and he, uh, his name was Dr. Ian F. Jones, and he talked like that all the time. It was amazing. Uh, He said that there is the one most important question that you should use in every counseling situation of all time, and it really is like the coolest thing. Uh, I, I think about it a lot. He says, and it actually comes from, I think, the first question in the entire Bible. Uh, So Adam and Eve are hanging out there. They're naked, but now they realize it, so they've put on some fig leaves and stuff. Uh, They know that they have sinned. They have turned away from God. And then what does he ask them? He says, Adam and Eve, where are you? Now, this is very interesting, and, you know, Dr. Jones would go nuts on this for, like, classes on end. This is very interesting. God knew where they were, right? No surprises. Who knows how big this garden is, but either way, he's God. He knows where they are, right? And uh, it doesn't really, like, you know, move the conversation along for him to say, where are you? So that means, what is he really asking them? 
He's asking them to take an opportunity to take a step back and ask themselves, where are they? And Dr. Jones would say that every single counseling conversation begins with this question in some form of another of saying, like, where are you? He calls it the location question, where you have to actually think consciously about yourself, about your life, about what's happening around you. And depending on the particular, you know, counseling situation that is happening, you're having to respond by saying, well, I guess this is where I am. This is where I stand. For us, I think we have to ask ourselves the same question in relation to the cross. And this can mean two things. One, in a very literal sense, I believe that every human being has to make a response to the cross. Every human being has to respond to who Jesus is and what he has done. C.S. Lewis is uh, sort of famous, or the the quote is attributed to him for saying that uh, Jesus was either lunatic, a liar, or Lord. I think Lewis actually says it a little bit different, but it's basically this simple idea that like Jesus, in the way that he was talking, you either have to write him off as being a crazy person, or some sort of like lying charlatan revolutionary guy, or the actual Lord and King of the universe. There's really not much room for the in-between. And the same is true for the cross. Every single person must make a judgment as to where they stand in relationship to the cross. But I think, though, even for us who are Christians, there's another meaning to this. We have to ask ourselves where we stand in relationship to the cross every single day. Luke 9.23 says this, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily to follow me. Now remember, this is even uh, months and months time before Jesus was actually brought to the cross. He's saying to his disciples, If you want to follow me, you are going to have to pick up your cross daily and follow me. And I don't think he's suggesting for us to do this literally. He's suggesting instead that every single day, every single moment of our lives, all the time, this isn't like a one-time decision, we have to make the sort of location question to understand where we stand in relationship to the cross. Every single day, you are choosing to take a stance in relationship to the cross. The cross calls into a question a lot of ways that I live, a lot of ways uh, that I choose to live, a lot of ways that I try to go about my life. The cross makes me question those things. See, in my own wisdom and my own uh, ability to sort of decide the way in which I wish to go with my life, uh, a lot of times that leads me into a place of more comfort And then I look to the cross, and the cross was not comfortable. A lot of times, uh, my life gets to a place where I say, you know what, I need to sacrifice less, and other people need to sacrifice more. That was the exact opposite of the way that the cross was. Jesus was sacrificing the most for people who were sacrificing nothing. A lot of times my life tells me that I need to get what is mine, that I need to get what is right, that I need to uh, have justice and fairness done to me because that is what is most important. Jesus on the cross shows us that he is taking on the punishment of guilty men even though he was the only one who was innocent, the only one who was righteous. I like to tell myself uh, that power and influence and standing 
these are the most important things. Jesus on the cross tells me that love for others and sacrificing for others is actually more important. I like to tell myself that the short term is the most important thing, that like what I'm experiencing today, I need to be able to fix immediately. Jesus on the cross tells us uh, that he was playing a long game, right? He's solidifying the victory that will be uh, finally brought into fruition at the end of all time there on the cross. truth is, I think if we looked at a lot of our decisions, if we looked at a lot of uh, the way in which we choose to live our life, and we compared them to the way that Jesus lived and the way that Jesus died on the cross for each and every one of us, we would find that all too often we think, or at least we act like we think, that the cross is folly. That doesn't make sense. It's not relevant for today's world that if we want to get ahead, we have to do certain things. If we want to uh, you know, be respected, we have to do certain things. If we want to live the best life, we have to do certain things. And the cross seems silly and outdated and it doesn't make sense. And the way that Jesus calls us to live seems like it is impossible. But Paul says that the cross is only folly to those people who are perishing. But for those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. My simple point is this. You you can't take a neutral position on the cross. And every single day you go through life, you have the opportunity to trust in it for being the power of God, for trusting in it to be the actual way in which we ought to be living our lives or to reject it as folly. And I would say this too. For every single person right now in this room, And really every single person that has ever lived on this planet, this side of the cross, we have to make a decision as to where we stand in light of the cross. There's no half Christians out there. There's no people that are half saved. There's no people uh, that are halfway in and halfway out. It is either the power of God and your salvation or it is a joke. Today, you have the opportunity to make that choice. And the beautiful thing is, the great thing, the sort of power of the cross, is that Jesus was the one who had to be on it. You know, I've only said that, I've said that there's two sort of places where you can stand in relation to the cross. Well, that's actually not true. There's actually three. So we, uh, being people who are not Jesus, have the opportunity to look at the cross, to look at Jesus dying on the cross and say, uh, I don't believe that. That's folly. That's crazy. And I don't get it. Or we have the opportunity to stand and say, that is actually my salvation. That is actually the only way in which I may be saved. And it is the power of God. But there is a third position and one that we could never take, and that is being on the cross, which is where Jesus was bleeding and dying for you and me. So 
So the beauty of this is that though it may be difficult to choose the cross, though it may be difficult to trust in the power of God for our salvation, though it may be difficult sometimes to believe that it is the power of salvation, we are chasing after our own way, our own plans, our own schemes. Ultimately, it is Jesus that bridges the gap in our lives. It is Jesus who actually takes the step that we cannot take and fills in the gaps in our faith that we cannot fill in ourselves. It is ultimately that power and that grace of the cross that is the power of God for our salvation. Not in anything that we can do in ourselves, not in any sort of like, you know, muscling, any sort of power, any sort of influence we can exert on ourselves, but the power of God working in and through our lives. For while we were the people that Jesus was suffering for, he has now chosen, to, chosen us to be the people uh, who can experience his salvation, his power, and his eternal life with him forever. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.